Chapter forty one of the Laughing Cavalier, Ancestor of the Scarlet Pimpernel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Laughing Cavalier, Ancestor of the Scarlet Pimpernel, by Baroness Ortsey. Chapter forty one Vengeance is Mine. It was like a man possessed of devils that the Lord of Stoutenburg ran out through the mist toward the molens the grey light of this winter's morning had only vaguely pierced the surrounding gloom and the basement beneath the molens still looked impenetrably dark dark and silent the soldier foreign mercenaries and louts had vanished in the fog arms hastily thrown down littered the mud-covered ground swords pistols muskets torn clothing here and there a neckcloth a steel bonnet a bright-coloured sash stoutenberg saw it all right through the gloom and he ground his teeth together to smother a cry of agonised impotence only now and then a ghostly form flitted swift and silent among the intricate maze of beams a laggard left behind in the general scramble for safety or a human scavenger on the prowl for loot now and then a groan or a curse came from out of the darkness and a weird shapeless moving thing would crawl along in the mud like some creeping reptile seeking its lair but stoutenberg looked neither to the right nor left he paid no heed to these swiftly fleeting ghost-like forms he knew well enough that he would find silence here that three dozen men cowards and mercenaries all had been scattered like locusts before a gale overhead he heard the tramping of feet his friends Berestein, Heemskirk, Van Doze, were making ready for flight. His one scheme of vengeance, that for which he had thirsted and plotted and sinned, had come to naught. But he had yet another in his mind, one which, if successful, would give him no small measure of satisfaction for the failure of the other. And ahead the outline of the hastily improvised gallows detached itself out of the misty shroud, and from the lord of Stoutenburg's throat there came a fierce cry of joy, which surely must have delighted all the demons in hell he hurried on covering with swift eager steps the short distance that separated him from the gibbet he called loudly to jan for it seemed to him as if the place was unaccountably deserted he could not see jan nor yet the prisoner and surely piet the red had not proved a coward the solid beams above and around him threw back his call in reverberating echoes he called again and from far away a mocking laugh seemed alone to answer him like a frightened beast now he bounded forward there were the gallows not five paces away from him the planks hastily hammered together a while ago were creaking weirdly buffeted by the wind and up aloft the rope was swinging beating itself with a dull eerie sound against the wood the lord of stoutenburg dazed and stupefied looked on this desolate picture like a man in a dream my lord the voice came feebly from somewhere close by my lord for pity's sake it was jan's voice of course the lord of stoutenburg turned mechanically in the direction from whence it came not far from where he was standing he saw jan lying on the ground against a beam with a scarf wound loosely round his mouth and his arms held with a cord behind his back stoutenburg unwound the scarf and untied the cord then he murmured dully jan what does this mean the men all threw down their arms my lord 
said Jan, as soon as he had struggled to his feet. They ran like cowards when Lucas of Sparendame brought the news. I knew that, said Stoutenburg hoarsely. Curse them all for their miserable cowardice. But the prisoner, man, the prisoner, what have you done with him? Did I not order you to guard him with your life? Then is mine own life forfeit, my lord, said Jan simply, for I did fail in guarding the prisoner. A violent oath broke from Stoutenburg's trembling lips. He raised his clenched fist, ready to strike, in his blind, unreasoning fury, the one man who had remained faithful to him to the last. Jan slowly bent the knee. Kill me, my lord, he said calmly. I could not guard the prisoner. Stoutenburg was silent for a moment. Then his upraised arm fell nervelessly by its side. How did it happen? he asked. I scarce can tell you, my lord, replied Jan. The attack on us was so quick and sudden. Piet and I did remain at our post, but in the rush and the panic we presently were left alone beside the prisoner. Two men, who were his friends, must have been on the watch for this opportunity. They fell on us from behind and caught us unawares. We called in vain for assistance. It was a case of sauve qui peut, and every one for himself. In a trice the cords that bound the prisoner were cut, and three men had very quickly the best of us. Piet, though wounded in the leg, contrived to escape, but it almost seemed as if those three demons were determined to spare me. Though by God, added Jan fervently, I would gladly have died rather than have seen all this shame. When they had brought me down, they wound a scarf round my mouth and left me here tied to a beam while they disappeared in the fog. Stoutenburg made no comment on this brief narrative. Even the power of cursing seemed to have deserted him. He left Jan kneeling there on the frozen ground, and without a word he turned on his heel and made his way once more between the beams under the molens back toward the hut. Vengeance indeed had eluded his grasp. The two men whom on earth he hated most had remained triumphant while he himself had been brought down to the lowest depths of loneliness and misery. Friendless, kinless now, life indeed, as he had told Gilda, was at an end for him. Baffled vengeance would henceforth make him a perpetual exile, and a fugitive with every man's hand raised against him, a price once more upon his head. The world doth at times allow a man to fail in the task of his life. It will forgive that one failure, and allow the man to try again. But a second failure is unforgivable. Men turn away from the blunderer in contempt. Who would risk life, honor, and liberty in a cause that has twice failed? Stoutenberg knew this. He knew that within the hour his friends would already have practically deserted him. Panic-stricken now, they would accompany him as far as the coast. They would avail themselves of all the measures which he had devised for their mutual safety. But in their innermost hearts they would already have detached themselves from his future ill-fortunes and anon, in a few months mayhap, when the stadtholder had succumbed to the disease which was threatening his life, they would all return to their homes, and to their kindred, and forget this brief episode, wherein their leader's future had been so completely and so irretrievably wrecked. They would forget, only he, Stoutenburg, would remain the pariah, the exile, that carries the brand of traitor forever upon the pages of his life and now the hut is once more in sight and for one brief instant an inward light flickers up in stoutenburg's dulled eyes gilda is there gilda whom he loves and whose presence in the sorrow-laden years that are to come 
would be a perpetual compensation for all the humiliation and all the shame which he had endured. Today, mayhap, she would follow him unwillingly, but Stoutenburg's passion was proof against her coldness. He felt that he could conquer her, that he could win her love, when once he had her all to himself in a distant land, when she, kinless too and forlorn, would naturally turn to him for protection and for love. He had little doubt that he would succeed, and vaguely in his mind there rose the pale ray of hope that her love would then bring him luck, or at any rate, put renewed energy in him to begin his life anew. End of chapter 41 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah